A family vacation on a sailboat in the Bahamas sounds like something from a fairy tale. Bright blue water and white sand beaches. But what if that family trip turned into your darkest nightmare? I'm Mel Hill, and this is The Survivors. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Survivors. This final story of season one was brought to our attention by one of our listeners, Taylor Lubecki. Follow along on Instagram at The Survivors Podcast for pictures and visuals pertaining to each episode. We truly appreciate you tuning in every week, and we'll be back this summer with more incredible true stories of survival in season two. So stay tuned. Terry Joe Duperalt lay on the bow of the bluebell and gazed at the endless blue horizon surrounding her. Sails fluttered in the wind above her and the swells of the Atlantic gently splashed against the hull. She was on the vacation of a lifetime. Her father, Arthur, had chartered a sailboat for the family, and now they had a full week to relax in the sun and enjoy the magnificent islands of the Bahamas. The Duperalts were from Green Bay, Wisconsin, where Arthur was a successful optometrist, an eye care professional. He loved to sail in the bay and Lake Michigan and was quite a competent sailor. For years, Arthur had dreamed of taking a year off work, moving his family onto a sailboat and exploring the world from the water. This week in the Bahamas was sort of a practice round, trying out the life aquatic to see how they liked it. And if, as a family, they truly loved it, they could start that adventure in the very near future. Terry Jo was 11 years old and the middle of three children. Her brother, Ryan, was 14 and her little sister, Renee, was seven. Terry was pretty with bright blonde hair. She loved playing in the woods around their home in Green Bay. Her favorite game was Tarzan because of her deep love for animals. Jean, her mother, was thrilled about their upcoming Bahama sailing adventure. It was early November, and Green Bay was already terribly cold. The tropical sun would be a welcome relief. The family had flown into Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and boarded the Bluebell on Wednesday, November 8, 1961. This yacht was a sleek, 60-foot catch sailboat, meaning it had two masts. The taller main mast was near the bow, and the shorter mizzen mast was near the stern. It was a beautiful boat, with plenty of deck space to sprawl out in the endless sunshine, and a full cabin complete with multiple sleeping quarters. Now, sailing a 60-foot boat can be quite stressful, and Arthur wanted to relax and truly enjoy every moment with his family on this trip. So he hired a captain for the journey, 44-year-old Julian Harvey. Harvey was a highly experienced sailor and a decorated war hero, having flown as a bomber pilot in World War II and Korea. Arthur Duperall was also a veteran and immediately felt a camaraderie with Harvey. Also coming along on the trip was Harvey's wife, Mary Dean. She was 34 years old and a former TWA flight attendant. She would cook meals for the family and help out around the boat. Harvey and his wife were living full-time on the Bluebell making a living as a hired captain, 
He didn't own the Bluebell, but had an arrangement with the owner that allowed him and Mary to live on the sailboat and charter it out for money. In return, the owner would receive a portion of the earnings. So, on that Wednesday in 1961, the Duperalts and the Harveys set out on their eagerly awaited adventure. The small, 115-horsepower motor chugged to life and they slowly drifted away from the dock and out into the open sea. Soon, the two sails were hoisted and sprung to life, catching the warm wind of the Gulf Stream and tilting the boat into an exhilarating heel. It was perfect. A week of island hopping in the Bahamas. What could be better? The next four days were incredible. They headed east to the Bimini Island chain and then on to Sandy Point, a small seaside village on Great Abaco Island. They cruised from island to island, snorkeling, spearfishing, and relaxing on deserted white sand beaches. In the evenings, they feasted on the best seafood they had ever had. Arthur Duperall was over the moon, and so was the entire family. But as we're all painfully aware, all incredible vacations must come to an end. So, on Sunday morning, they stopped at the Sandy Point Commissioner's office to fill out some forms to leave the Bahamas and return to the U.S. Then they set sail and headed west. That night, on board in the open sea, the Duperalls and the Harveys sat down to enjoy the last meal that would ever be served on the Bluebell. After dinner, around 9 p.m., 11-year-old Terry Jo decided it was time for bed. She opened the hatch and headed down below deck, making her way through the galley to the room in the back, which she shared with her little sister, Renee. Renee was still up on deck with her brother, her parents, and the Harveys, but Terry Jo was tired, and so she crawled into bed and dozed off to sleep. Terry Jo awoke suddenly in the middle of the night to the sound of screams, blood-curdling screams. Her brother, Brian, was shrieking, help, daddy, help. There was commotion on the deck, scuffling, running, bamming, and then silence. Frozen in fear, Terry Jo stayed motionless in her bed. She didn't make a sound. Three minutes passed, four minutes, five minutes. Still, nothing but silence. Terry Jo crept out of her small room and gasped in horror as her eyes fell upon the unmoving, dead bodies of her mother and brother laying in a pool of blood in the galley of the boat. Even at 11 years old, she knew they were dead. Terrified, Terry Jo made her way up the companionway, the three small stairs, and then peered out the hatch at the top. She could see more blood on the starboard side of the cockpit, but bravely snuck out onto the deck. As she peered towards the bow, Julian Harvey, the captain of the boat, furiously emerged from the dark and grabbed Terry Jo. What happened? Terry Jo pleaded. Harvey ignored her question and angrily shoved her back down the hatch, growling, get back down there. In complete disbelief and fear, Terry Jo made her way back to her room, averting her eyes as she passed over the crumpled bodies of her mother and brother, careful not to step in the pooling blood. She crawled back into her bunk and trembled as she thought about what she had just witnessed and tried to comprehend it. On deck, the sails and rigging had seemed fine and the weather was calm. What was going on? Cowering in her bed, Terry Jo began hearing water sloshing around her room. 
looking down, she saw the entire floor covered in a layer of seawater. It looked and smelled oily. Oh my God, this boat is filling with water. All of a sudden, Harvey appeared in the dark doorway, holding what appeared to be a rifle. He stared down at her for what seemed like a lifetime, but then, just as suddenly, disappeared. She heard him ascend the companionway and exit onto the deck. Terry Jo was still petrified with fear and unable to move. Where was her father and her little sister, Renee? Where was Mrs. Harvey? But the water was quickly rising, and in no time, it was all the way up to her mattress, lapping onto the bed. She knew she had to get out of there, now. She hopped off the mattress into the waist-deep water and made her way forward, terrified she would bump into her dead family members floating somewhere in the black water inside the boat. Tentatively, Terry Jo stepped back onto the deck, and she could see that Harvey had launched the Bluebell's dinghy and rubber lifeboat which were floating off the port side. Are we sinking? She asked. Yes, Harvey shouted, before handing Terry Joe the line to the dinghy. But in her complete shock and terror, the dinghy line slipped right through her hands and it began floating away. Harvey quickly noticed and immediately dove into the sea, swimming towards the dinghy and disappearing completely into the darkness. Terry Joe was alone completely and utterly alone, abandoned on a sinking ship. I can't even begin to imagine how Terry Jo must have felt. 11 years old, left to die on this boat, in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, with her family dead or missing. It must have been an overwhelming sense of loneliness and despair and terror. But then Terry Jo remembered something, there was a small cork life float attached to the front starboard side of the cabin. If she could get to it and untie it, she might have a chance. Terry Jo carefully made her way over to the life float, which by now was just barely above water. Waves were lapping onto the deck as she fumbled to untie the float. Precious seconds ticked by. One knot, two more, almost there. And then just as she untied the last knot, the bluebell disappeared from under her feet and she was left there, clinging to the float, alone in the pitch black sea. But one of the ropes from her float got tangled in the bluebell and for a few terrifying seconds, Terry Joe's life raft with her on it disappeared underwater along with the boat, plunging deep into the depths of the black sea. Luckily, her raft untangled and came bobbing back up to the surface with her still on. Terry Joe got as low as possible and stayed completely silent. Harvey was still out there and who knows what his motives were. Freezing cold and submerged in seawater, Terry Joe held on for dear life and prayed the sun would soon come up. Now, this life float is not a very seaworthy device it's basically a white five foot by two foot cork oval with canvas webbing underneath to hold your feet. So you're always in the water. And even if she had supplies, there was nowhere to put them, but she had nothing. Terry Jo had only what she was wearing, a thin white blouse and pink pants. She could do nothing except lay there in her watery cork float and bob in the ocean. That first night was awful. 
Clouds had moved in and the moon had set, so it was completely dark. She could see nothing. She felt the waves come out of nowhere and toss her around and the spray of the cold water on her face. She heard the wind gush by and the lapping of the water on her raft. A rain shower chilled her even more. She kept thinking to herself, where is my father? She hadn't seen him at all during the commotion on the boat, and she was so scared. The morning sun finally brought relief from the cold, but soon she had the opposite problem. She was burning up in the unending, inescapable sunlight. There's literally nowhere to go, direct sun, all day long. She was already so thirsty. And then there were the parrotfish. They liked to nibble on her toes with their sharp teeth. Already on day one, the cork float was showing signs of decay. It was an emergency float, and it was meant only to go in the water for a short time for somebody that had gone overboard. It was discoloring and it seemed to be wearing down. It was really no match for extended time in the salt water. It wouldn't last much longer. And this was a huge problem since Terry Jo was in the Gulf Stream and she was being carried slowly east towards the British Isles. A very long, slow day came and went and Terry Jo floated on. Meanwhile, as Terry Jo desperately clung to her tiny raft, Julian Harvey was spotted in his dinghy by the Gulf Lion, an oil tanker headed for Puerto Rico. And he wasn't alone. Accompanying Harvey in his wooden dinghy was the corpse of little Renee Duperall, again, only seven years old. She was wearing an oversized life jacket. Once on board the Gulf Lion, Harvey told a harrowing tale of his ordeal. According to Harvey, a tropical squall had blown in the previous night around 11 p.m., snapping the main mast in half. Part of the mast crashed onto the Bluebell's deck, rupturing a fuel line and starting a huge fire. Everyone gathered by the stern of the boat while Harvey bravely tried to extinguish the flames by himself. But it was too late. The Bluebell was sinking and they had to abandon ship. Everyone jumped into the water while Harvey was so bravely launching the dinghy. He frantically searched the stormy seas for the Duperalts, but was only able to find Renee, floating face down and already dead. Somehow, the entire family and his wife had just disappeared beneath the waves. Now, I know what you're thinking. This is not what happened, and yeah, you're right. But before we can go into that, we need to take a second and talk about who exactly was decorated war hero Julian Harvey. As an infant, Harvey's father had left him, and he never knew him. His mother was a gorgeous Broadway chorus girl who later married a successful theater empresario who spoiled young Harvey and even bought him a sailboat when he was only 10 years old. This probably inspired his love of sailing. But his mother divorced and Harvey was sent to live with his wealthy aunt and uncle. He always seemed to find himself in the lap of luxury. Harvey was scrawny as a child, but in his teens became somewhat obsessed with bodybuilding and his physique. He blossomed into a handsome young man and even did some modeling for the well-known John Roberts Powers Agency. According to Salon.com, it was around this time that he first manifested a tendency that would remain a recurrent feature of his life, a strange affinity for accidents. 
1941, he enlisted with the Air Corps and flew more than 30 combat missions, surviving more than two crash landings. By 1944, he had been awarded a trove of medals. He was terribly attractive, which made him quite popular with the ladies. He struggled, however, to hold on to his relationships. He was married a total of six times. On April 21st, 1949, Harvey was living in Elgin Air Force Base with his third wife, Joanne. One night, as he was driving home from the movies with his wife and his mother-in-law, his car ended up skidding on a wooden bridge. It crashed through the guardrail and plunged into the river. Both his wife and mother-in-law died in that crash, while Harvey walked away without a scratch on him. It was an extremely suspicious accident. Harvey had said he had somehow seen it coming and opened his door and was thrown out just before the car went over the edge. Divers investigating the crash and recovering the bodies of his wife and mother-in-law later discovered that all four doors had been locked and only the driver's side window was down. This made his story even more suspicious, like he had actually gone into the water and had been able to get his window down only to leave his wife and his mother-in-law to drown inside that car. According to this same article in Salon.com, a military doctor who interviewed Harvey after the accident said, quote, underneath his veneer of charm and sophistication was an amoral man with no real empathy for others, a man who could be dangerous. But without sufficient evidence, no charges were brought. Harvey collected the insurance money from the death of his third wife and moved on. He married again just a few months later. He soon then shipped off to Korea and flew another 114 combat missions before coming home and immediately divorcing this new wife, who was wife number four. Within the next year, Harvey remarried again. This was wife number five. He bought a huge sailboat, which he promptly crashed and sank in circumstances that were also deemed highly suspicious. This time, it seemed he had intentionally rammed a sunken, submerged Navy vessel, then sued the government and won a settlement of about $14,000, which today would be more than $100,000. He took that settlement money and he bought himself another new boat. But during his divorce from wife number five, that new boat mysteriously caught fire and also sank, and he scored another 40,000 in insurance. I mean, you literally can't make this shit up. So by the time Arthur Duperalt connected with Julian Harvey, he was newly married to wife number six, Mary Dean, for only about four months. Needless to say, Arthur was completely unaware of Harvey's checkered past. Back on the cork life raft, on day two since the sailboat sank, Terry Joe saw a plane fly overhead. Heart pounding, she desperately screamed and waved at it, and the plane came closer and closer, so close that she could see the details on the bottom of it. But then it just continued on, out of sight. Had it seen her? Unlikely. Terry Joe was too young to know that it was nearly impossible to spot someone in the vast ocean, especially someone wearing white on a white life raft with white hair. She just looked like another white cap on an endless rolling sea. Later that day in the afternoon, as Terry Joe lay in her tiny raft, she saw something out of the corner of her eye. 
Peering into the sea, she spotted some dark figures under the water coming directly for her. Were they sharks? Her stomach dropped. Terry Jo braced herself for what seemed like her eminent demise. But when the creatures surfaced, they weren't sharks at all. They were porpoise. A wave of relief came over Terry Jo as the curious creatures inspected her tiny little raft. They followed her for hours, breaching and playing. They brought her so much comfort hearing the sounds of their blowholes as they came up for air because she knew she wasn't alone. The company was so comforting and she even said a prayer thanking God for their arrival. Though they stayed with her for hours, they eventually swam off and Terry Jo was alone again. Soon the scorching sun sank below the horizon and gave way to another miserably cold and endless wet night. Terry Jo remembers her dreams from that night. She was in the cockpit of an airliner, coming in for landing, and she could see the bright lights of the runway, but the runway itself was an endless black abyss. Then she saw her father, relaxing with a glass of wine. The wine looked delicious, exactly what she needed to quench her undying thirst. By the next day, Wednesday, the third since the accident, the pain was becoming unbearable. Terry Jo was burning badly. Her skin was literally roasting. Her throat was so parched and swollen, her lips cracked and bleeding. Her muscles cramped and her eyes were so dry and burned she could barely open them. She was so thirsty. The canvas webbing under the raft was continuing to deteriorate and break, and she could no longer sit on it, so now she had to balance on the cork oval. By now, she was losing it mentally. The sun will do that to you. It'll make you go mad. She started hallucinating. She saw an island with a solitary palm tree. She paddled towards it, only to see it disappear completely. She eventually lost consciousness. Somehow, Terry Jo, again, just 11 years old, made it through another night and woke on Thursday, barely clinging to life. But today was different. There was some cloud cover and the sea was up. Rolling waves hoisted her high on the crest before dropping through into the trough over and over again. Barely conscious, she held on for her life. That Thursday, around mid-morning, as Terry Jo lay dying in her raft, she heard a rumble in the ocean. She could feel it in her chest, a rhythmic pounding. Completely exhausted and miserably dehydrated, she raised her head and opened her red, burned eyes. But instead of the endless blue horizon, she saw black. A massive black wall loomed in front of her as she looked up and she could see people waving down, shouting at her. In her state, Terry Jo could hardly comprehend what was happening. But all of a sudden, she was in midair, being hoisted upwards. Arms grabbed her and pulled her on deck, and she fell back into unconsciousness. But she was safe. Terry Jo Duperalt was going to survive. On the morning of November 16, 1961, less than 48 hours after his rescue, Julian Harvey was in Miami for the official Coast Guard investigation. He was in rather good spirits, dressed in a brand new sports coat and slacks with an unbuttoned collared shirt. 
This is so strange considering he had just lost his wife at sea, as well as an entire family in an accident. But he remained calm and collected during the interrogation, never deviating from his story. But his chain of events had problems. There was a lighthouse nearby where they sank, and the operator had seen no flaming ships that night. And many questioned whether the broken portion of the mast could actually do the amount of damage he claimed. But since he was the only survivor, they had to take his word for it. The only piece of evidence, the bluebell, was at the bottom of the sea. Harvey was just finishing his testimony when a Coast Guard official burst into the room with incredible news. Another survivor had been found. It was Terry Joe. The timing here couldn't have been better. It's like a movie where you roll your eyes because it's just that unbelievable. The guy had burst into the room while Harvey was giving his statement. Harvey said, my God, why, that's wonderful. But inside, he was freaking out. He quickly scurried out of the room. Terry Joe had been rescued in the Northwest Providence Channel by a Greek freighter called the Captain Theo. One of the crew had snapped a picture of her in her raft when they spotted her. An incredible picture of a little girl lost at sea. This was the photo seen round the world on the cover of every magazine and newspaper. You can check it out on our Instagram. It took the men a while before they could finally hoist Terry up because she was surrounded by sharks when they found her. But when they finally got her onto deck, it was clear that she was in terrible shape. She was severely dehydrated and badly sunburned. Her eyes were distant and she looked near death. She was able to mumble a few words to the captain, her name and the word Bluebell. The captain quickly sent a message to the Coast Guard. Picked up blonde girl, brown eyes, from a small white raft, suffering exposure and shock. Terry Joe was taken by helicopter to Mercy Hospital in Miami, where she began her recovery amidst a sea of press. She was soon dubbed the Sea Wave. Terry Joe made a remarkable recovery, and in just a few days was able to testify for the Coast Guard on Monday, November 20th. Her story, of course, was vastly different from Harvey's. She explained how the night unfolded and testified that the seas were calm that night and that there was never a fire on board. Her testimony only reinforced what many had already begun to suspect, that what happened on that bluebell wasn't an accident at all, that it was the intentional work of a psychopath, one who had a long history of escaping tragic accidents. Unknown to investigators at the time, Harvey was already dead. After hearing the news that Terry Joe was found alive, Julian Harvey checked himself into a motel under the name John Monroe and committed suicide. He wrote a brief note stating, quote, I'm a nervous wreck and I can't continue. I'm going out now. I guess I either don't like life or don't know what to do with it. Then, after leaving a few measly dollars for the maid, Harvey got into the bathtub and cut his left thigh down to the bone with a double-edged razor blade. And then he cut his ankles and forearms and finally his own throat. His self-inflicted wounds were so severe that the police initially wondered if he had been murdered. But now it was so clear 
The Bluebell wasn't sunk by a storm and it didn't catch fire. And the family didn't die of natural causes. This was the work of a madman. After Terry Joe was released from the hospital and after she had testified for the Coast Guard, she was flown back to Green Bay, Wisconsin. She moved in with relatives, her aunt and uncle in the area, and they raised her as their own. Unfortunately, back in the 60s, mental health and therapy weren't as widely accepted or understood as it is today. She did see a psychiatrist, but Terry's relatives believed that the best way for her to deal with the incident was to completely ignore it. The topic was off limits. No one ever spoke of it. It was as if it never happened. Teachers and friends were asked not to bring it up, and she even changed the spelling of her name from T-E-R-R-I to T-E-R-E. Even though her family thought they were doing what was right for Terry at the time, obviously not talking about what happened caused deep emotional distress for Terry throughout the years. She was never able to truly deal with the trauma of losing her entire family in one horrible night. It took 50 years before she was able to speak publicly about her experience. In 2010, Terry finally opened up about the Bluebell incident in her memoir, Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean. In it, she mentions an interview she had with a psychologist in which she was given sodium pentothal, a sort of truth serum, and underwent hypnosis. With that, she was able to recall many more specific details about that night, such as the pajamas her brother was wearing and seeing a bloody knife on the deck of the Bluebell. In an interview, Terry told Today, quote, everybody was told not to speak to me about it, so I was never able to talk about it. It was always in my mind. I did see a psychiatrist, but he really didn't get to the meat of what was my problem and that was the loss of my family. The loss of her family had a profound effect on Terry. For a long time, she actually thought her father might still be alive. She hadn't actually seen his body that night, as she had her mother and brother, and her sister's body had been brought back by Harvey. It took years for her to come to terms with her father's death. Despite the fact that she was never able to truly deal with her trauma until her adult life, Terry still managed to find happiness and fulfillment. She married and had three children of her own. She's now retired from her career in the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, where she spent her career protecting the waterways and the near shore areas from being overdeveloped and altered. It's amazing that she decided to work with water after having such a traumatic experience with it as a young child. The most remarkable aspect of this story is Terry Joe's courage. At only 11 years old, she escaped a murderer, abandoned a sinking ship alone, and survived four days adrift in the sea on only a piece of cork. She also inspired a lasting change in aquatic safety that we still see today. Terry was adrift on a tiny white cork raft wearing a white shirt and pale pink pants. She was almost invisible in the sea as a white speck in a vast, white-capped sea. The Coast Guard now requires emergency life preservers and floats to be the ubiquitous orange that we all know today. And that is because of Terry. It may have taken her 50 years before she could find her voice to tell her story, but 
Honestly, it's better late than never. She knows her story of loss and survival can help others who are dealing with similar pain. The story of the Bluebell and Terry Joe's miraculous survival takes our breath away. And for that, she is one of our favorite survivors. Thank you for listening to our final episode of season one of The Survivors. We'll be back this summer with more epic true tales of those who escaped death in season two. If there's a story you'd like us to tell, or if you have any feedback, please message us on Instagram at The Survivors Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify for updates of when our next season is released. See you next season on The Survivors. <laughs>